1: the country's reunification in 1990, German chancellors have tried to engineer a stable relationship with their counterparts in the Kremlin, preferring engagement to confrontation. But as Vladimir Putin strengthened his autocratic grip, it turned out that this apparent calm was in fact a powder keg. On the 13th of March 2014, days after Russia seized Crimea, Angela Merkel stood at the front of the Bundestag and challenged Putin's aggression, announcing a catalogue of sanctions in the hope of preventing further military incursions. As Merkel saw it, Europe had returned to the throes of a 19th century tussle over spheres of influence, one we thought we'd overcome, she said, stressing that only the principles of the 21st century will resolve it. Her determination to stop Putin, however, didn't prevent Germany maintaining a desire to keep Russia as a partner. The status quo remained. But now, with war on its doorstep, Germany has been forced to rethink its Russia policy abruptly. On the 27th of February this year, Merkel's successor Olaf Scholz announced that the moment was a Zeitenwende, a turning point that would rupture decades of foreign and security policy. He said warmongers like Putin had to be kept in check and pledged arms to Ukraine, also promising to end Germany's dependence on Russian energy exports. But is this change in times really the start of a new era for Europe's powerhouse? This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how is the Russian crisis changing Germany? I've been traveling in Germany to explore how war in Eastern Europe is changing and challenging attitudes here. In this special episode, you'll be hearing from a government minister dealing with the fraught question of Germany's energy dependence on Moscow. And we'll visit the site of Nordstrom 2 once the most prestigious Germany-Russia project, now abandoned. But first, a history lesson. Here in Berlin, I always take a stroll past the vast facade of the mighty Russian embassy on Unter den Linden. It's a reminder of the centrality of the relationship in all its pomp. Now the area is sealed off behind barriers to fend off protesters. To understand the complexity of dealings between Germany and Russia, I spoke to the author and former NATO strategist, John Loff. He's worked in both countries in the old Cold War and the new one.
2: I think the history makes this a very distinctive relationship. This is a deep and complex uh, set of ties between Germany and Russia going back centuries People tend to forget that Germans exercised a huge influence over the development of Russia as a state, going back to the days of Peter the Great and thereafter, particularly under Catherine the Great. There was a large number of Germans who came into the Russian system and shaped its military its system of state administration, the language, the education system, the healthcare system. So these countries are tied by something uh, unusual. So I think for Germans in particular, there's this sense that they understand Russia better than others. They are respected in Russia for being people who've brought these very, very important characteristics uh, to Russia and their very high standards of engineering, for example, their organisation, which Russians on their side deeply admire.
1: I was very interested in your point that cultural references are often more shared than elsewhere, that there are a lot of words that have been adopted from German into Russian. What do you think the commonalities are between the two countries? Give us an
2: example or two. Well, my favourite example is how Germans deeply admire what they call the Russian soul. Russians try to distinguish themselves from Europeans as people who have this characteristic of emotional depth, of spontaneity, something that's specially Russian. But what's interesting is this notion of the Russian soul, in fact, originated in Germany. It's a German cultural export from the 19th century, a form of cultural romanticism. This goes back to, I suppose, the days of Fyodor Tyuchev, Dostoevsky quotes this a great deal. So this has left a huge mark culturally. But it's often not said, in fact, that the, the origins were from people like Schelling and, and Herder. And it's been rather forgotten by Germans that they were the originators of this.
1: So much for the cultural commonalities, but these two countries have waged massively destructive wars twice in the past century against each other. How has that affected their perception of one another today?
2: Well, the mutual perceptions are very, very complex. This notion that Germans and Russians can be the best of friends and yet the worst of enemies. Germans have this notion that they inflicted this level of suffering on the peoples of the Soviet Union. And I think for the Russians, this sense of identity and confidence in themselves that they acquired through the defeat of Nazi Germany. And look at this parade, the 9th of May, that takes place every year. This is so central to the sense of Russia's identity in Europe and the role that it should play in Europe.
1: And what about Germany's Russia policy when it comes to unification of Germany and what happens after that in 1990. Do you see something that is a distinctively German approach to Moscow?
2: Oh, very much so. There was a sense that, first of all, Germany owed Moscow for the very rapid and smooth unification of Germany that was really inconceivable a few years before that when it seemed that the Soviet Union might stagger on for a bit And for the Soviet Union to survive, it was going to have to keep Europe divided and uh, East Germany would continue to remain as a viable state, even though it was on pretty rocky foundations. Thereafter, I think the successive German governments felt that it was essential to integrate Russia into Europe. And in some ways, they they thought the Russians should behave as they Germans had behaved. Although they didn't say it, they recognised that the Soviet Union had been defeated in the Cold War. And that Russia had this opportunity to re-establish itself, reorientate itself, and just build an entirely new set of relations with its neighbors and with Europe as a whole. And they saw the instrument for driving this process as economic integration. This had worked for Germany, in the EU, and they wanted to open all doors possible to allow Russia to establish that type of relationship hence the enormous stress put on building, for example, energy ties. This was all deliberate, and some of it, of course, driven by the self-interest of German industry that wanted cheap gas and, and other raw materials. But the politicians saw this as a way of integrating Russia and building what they call this Friedensordnung, the peaceful order in Europe.
1: When Putin comes to power and consolidates his grip in an autocratic way in the 2000s, why does Angela Merkel continue with this Russia policy of her predecessors? Yes, it's useful to Germany, but it seems to be almost increasingly risky and likely to fail.
2: Angela Merkel understood Russia very well. She had the benefit of an upbringing in East Germany. She spoke the language well, and there's no doubt that she realised that things were not going in an encouraging direction, to put it mildly, in Russia. But I think she was one of those who felt that over time, Russia has the ability to evolve. She was not alone in investing a lot of faith in Dmitry Medvedev when he became president for four years after 2008. And he developed this more liberal view of the world. And Germans sensed that, well, this was one of the development options for Russia. But I think they and others totally underestimated the determination of the Putin group to remain in power and to remain in power to have to batten down the hatches and in fact deliberately seek a level of confrontation with the West because they believed that to preserve their rule they in fact had to change the system of European security so they had more space to run things the way they wanted to control their neighbours as they wanted and this was all about ultimately protecting their system. So I think Angela Merkel would say today that she underestimated the capacity of the Russian system to do that.
1: Although, interestingly, she hasn't really said very much to date, has she? There's a slight air of embarrassment, I think, hanging over that late Merkel period in Russia.
2: She's been pretty quiet on the subject so far, but Germany is going to have to re-examine this whole issue And I think that she will be drawn into a discussion because she doggedly kept, despite her considerable efforts in 2014, to reconfigure relations. And she drove European sanctions against Russia after the annexation of Crimea. And there were plenty of people in Germany who thought this was too radical a step and that it might, in fact, destabilise Russia. But at the same time, she clung to this idea of the energy partnership She had multiple opportunities to kill the Nord Stream 2 project, but chose not to.
1: And that energy problem hangs over the legacy of Angela Merkel's 16-year chancellorship. As John Loft said, she had plenty of chances to put Nord Stream 2 on ice. Instead, it was her successor who put a stopper in the pipeline. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Olaf Scholz suspended certification of the 10 billion euro project.
0: The
1: pipeline would have doubled the supply of Russian gas to Germany, but to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, it was a weapon and a preparation for a great war, a project that benefited Moscow. Built and operated by a company Owned by the Russian energy giant Gazprom, Nordstrom two was subject to US sanctions and heavily criticized by Poland and the Baltic states. And although the project was backed by both Germany's biggest political parties, the Greens opposed it on environmental grounds. To see it for myself, I traveled north from Berlin to the port of Lubmin on the Baltic coast. I was joined by Alexander Dorst from the Center for Baltic Sea Region Research at the University of Greifswald. We started with some geography. Lubmin is across the water from Denmark and not far from the Polish border. Is that why the pipelines arrive here?
0: I think there have been several reasons. This has been a remote harbour but also on the bay of the Baltic Sea and it was easy accessible from the Baltic Sea side. The second thing is this has been a really underdeveloped area and becomes more an underdeveloped area when the nuclear power plant closed down. And it is actually also very close in comparison to other regions within Germany where you actually can process the gas and, and oil.
1: North Stream 1, the first gas pipeline, was already here and operational and delivering gas from Russia to Germany and onwards to to Europe. And then North Stream 2 came about and it was controversial really from the start
0: yes so all the baltic sea region countries were actually opposing the ideas for different reasons so of course the baltic states were opposing it for security reason and because they do not trust russia at all and saw already the dependence on russian gas then the nordic countries were opposing from an environmental standpoint and of course poland was opposing it from a security issue standpoint
1: but it went ahead and it went uh, ahead with support and over many years and as the situation with Russia worsened and particularly after the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and events thereafter. How would you assess the state of opinion in the region and in these quiet communities where North Stream 2 was due to deliver its product?
0: The main reason why it continued was because it was on the federal level of both countries, Russia and Germany. On the regional level, it was very, very important for the local governments here to secure employment and industry. So that is why the project continued, because the threat, the security threat, was not Seen at that time yet even though there were a lot of question marks already uh, uh, around the Baltic Sea and also in Germany
1: we're in a part of Germany the the far east of the Old East is the way I think of it as someone who was here before 1989 but it's interesting too that there are practical reasons why people thought that North Stream 2 was a good idea but do you think there's also a kind of psychogeography at work which is to do with where we are on the map of Europe and the division of Germany and what people feel about a Russian project, for instance?
0: Yes, I think that the common Soviet memory and the heritage of it helped a little bit to develop these projects with Russia and maybe having, having some kind of common ground in the idea of trade relations and development here.
1: Would you say it was particularly popular here in Lubmin?
0: For the people, I think it didn't matter here if the gas came from Russia or Sweden or Denmark or Norway. It just meant economic stability and jobs.
1: I saw the mayor in Ludmine. He said he thought there might be another use for the pipeline. It could maybe be part of the expansion of hydrogen as a supplier of energy. What do you reckon?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is the plan for many uh, gas companies around Europe that are maintaining a grid system, that they actually want to use this gas grid system for hydrogen. But here the question actually is, why should we exchange hydrogen with Russia? And uh, who's actually then sending the hydrogen, we, to Russia or Russia to us? I, I don't see that it makes sense, actually, for the years to come.
1: It's a beautiful part of the country. Partly it has... Some tourism, but what is the future for parts of the region like this?
0: Oh, I think it is a great step back, actually, economically, so the people will notice and and maybe they will also leave and and look for jobs in in other regions.
1: Back on the long-haul rail journey to the heart of political Germany in Berlin, I went to the foreign ministry to sit down with Anna Luhrmann. Minister of State for Europe and Climate. She's a representative of the Green Party in the coalition government, and I wanted to talk to her about how the country can wean itself off Russian energy and how to reconfigure its relations with a powerful near-neighbor. But first, what did she make of the abrupt end to Nordstrom two?
3: To me, it signifies not only a turning point in German foreign policy and energy policy, but also the end of of the fossil age, actually. Because the reason why prior German governments have built up so much the energy dependency on Russia was because they thought we could only flourish our German growth model, our economic model, with this kind of cheap energy, cheap fossil energy. And now it's very clear that for security reasons, but also for climate reasons, we have to change. We have to build up renewables. And maintain our growth model with that.
1: But what does it mean to you in terms of the significance for German-Russian relations?
3: Well, it clearly means that uh, it was a mistake to be dependent so much on Russian imports and that we really now need to uh, build a future for Germany that is independent of uh, Russian energy and that uh, clearly invests now in renewable energies and energy independence, so that we can not only live in a peaceful world, but also in a world where the climate has bearable temperatures.
1: This week has seen the EU agree to a ban on blocking around two thirds of imports on Russian oil. The deal does block sea imports, but there's a temporary exception for Oil delivered by, by pipeline it had to be a fudge to get that deal over the line all around. But in the light of the aggression on the Russian side, shouldn't Europe be more committed to a stricter sanctions regime?
3: The German government has clearly argued for a, a stricter oil embargo, a faster one. And it's really a disappointment that due to the veto rights that are currently guaranteed uh, in the EU institutions, the Hungarian government managed to water down this deal as much as it did. Nevertheless, it is a clear sign towards Russia that we're phasing out of imports also of, of Russian oil. And I think that signal is really important. It took 26 days to get this Russian oil sanctions deal
1: agreed. And before it happened, Robert Harbeck, the vice chancellor, he mooted that European unity was in danger of crumbling. I mean, you're Europe minister. Is that how you see it?
3: First of all, I'm actually really astonished by the huge degree of unity, of resolve that we've seen in Europe since the beginning of the war. We agreed on the very first sanction packages just days after the war started. And the EU managed to be actually rather agile, which is normally not not a word that you use in in context with the EU. So indeed, now it seems that we've we've hit a roadblock here with the uh, Hungarian obstruction. And and that is really disappointing. Uh, And we are working very hard to overcome this uh, in the future. There is now talk of putting aside what used to be
1: taboos in the way that Germany redraws its policy on energy to lessen that dependency on Russia that you also reference. What does that mean in practice? When I started covering this story, basically that I was, well, we can't really move very fast on gas because we have to bring on new supplies. We can't get there so fast. The mood seems to have changed around that. And I'm wondering then in the background, what is happening? Is there a sense that Germany can take more of a, a lead on this and that its dependency maybe on Russian gas supplies can be cut to a point where you can move to something else rather more quickly?
3: Well, we've already started cutting down dependency on Russian gas supplies quite drastically. We were at 55% of our gas supplies coming from Russia uh, back in December. From day one of this government, we've really try to diversify our gas uh, import structure, also reduce uh, the demand, and now we're at 40%. So we're already moving. We have to move even faster. We're signing new contracts now uh, to import LNG gas. So we will see here really that we are on a, on a clear pathway to to become independent uh, from Russian gas imports, but it will take a bit more time, unfortunately, because the dependency was so high. The Testing point on that, if we move to the next level of
1: sanctions, it would really mean supporting a ban on Russian gas. And that would be a very powerful uh, message to Vladimir Putin. But the International Monetary Fund warns that, that a cut in natural gas from Russia is the largest threat to the German economy. Is that a risk?
3: That's indeed a risk. And that's why we've adopted the policy that the sanctions that we adopt should harm Russia more than they harm us. That's the whole goal of it. Uh, And we can already see that the sanctions we have adopted have a drastic impact on the Russian economy. If Vladimir Putin cares about his people and his economy, then he will have to change course. But he doesn't, does he? Well, that's exactly the problem, yeah.
1: You have an interesting role because you cover both Europe, here we're sitting in, in the foreign ministry, and climate and Germany's intentions there. To what extent does this conflict? complicate the aims of a very rigorous policy on climate, which is really one of the big drivers of the Greens
3: being in the the coalition? This conflict has uh, three impacts on, on the climate debate. One is actually one that speeds up the transformation of the energy sector away from fossil fuels to renewable energies, because we now know that we not only need to make this shift for the reason of protecting the climate, but also... For geostrategic reasons. Uh, And it's very clear that renewable energies are peace energies, are freedom energies, because they make us independent of of the authoritarian regimes of this world. Secondly, the impact of of this conflict on the climate agenda is, is one that's not so positive because it removes political energy away from this super important agenda. And we're doing all we can now as foreign ministry to keep the climate agenda at the center of international debates, for example, at the G7 summits. And thirdly, of course, also resources are shifted, uh, just financial resources. So it has to be very clear for me that all the shifting that we see now, for example, to the building up of of a new LNG infrastructure, that that has to be so-called H2 ready so that we can use this in the future also for the import of green hydrogen that that is being produced, for example, with solar panels.
1: It was already hard enough, I think, for the major democracies to meet the COP26 targets uh, agreed in Glasgow last year. Do you fear that the collateral damage from the Russia-Ukraine conflict is that that gets pushed further back or indeed that those targets may not be achievable given the shift in resources, the shift in political energy that we're seeing in this conflict?
3: Well, I think actually we've seen now in the last months really uh, uh, a speeding up of of this transition to renewable energies. And I've, for example, in my conversations with governments in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, I've clearly seen a new interest in this kind of technology and, and transition that I haven't noticed before. I'm actually quite optimistic that governments around the world now understand that we need to transition to renewable energies, not only for the climate, but also for geostrategic reasons, and and therefore that this agenda will really accelerate.
1: Let's turn to the broader conflict in Ukraine. Greens like yourself and the coalition have had a a very strong and sharp edge to your policy. You've led the way in the argument asking for stronger action against Mr. Putin. What do you want now? And I suppose what's changed for you personally since the start of the conflict in the way that you see what you're advocating?
3: Almost everything has changed. uh, The the way we see our position in the world, actually. When I came into this office, we thought we were in a a secure and a peaceful Europe. Then uh, on the 24th of February, we woke up very close to a war zone. This really changes the way we look on what are the major threats to the German people also. From this day, it was really clear that we have to invest, for example, in our defense forces more. And for me as a Green Party politician, that was, to be frank, never super high on my priority list. But now it's very, very clear that we need to be able to do our share as the EU's largest economy also in helping to defend our community against uh, Russian aggression. And that really, for me, has has been a, a fundamental shift. It's very, very clear knowledge. I mean, many suspected it before, but now it's really evident to anyone that we are dealing with a very aggressive, with a very malicious neighbor in the East. It's interesting to
1: me coming to Berlin on and off for many years and covering the fall of the Berlin Wall that, the mood feels in a way more divided than in many other Western European countries. I've probably had more conversation in the last day that said, where is this heading if we get too far involved, and particularly as the conflict intensifies? Taxi driver on the way here said, no, coming to the foreign For the office, <laughs> obviously thought I knew yeah. everything because I was coming to you yeah. at the foreign office, yeah. said, uh, you know, is the war going to spread outside Ukraine? Are we in danger in, in Germany? I mean, do you find that in the Green Party and also in the, coalition and beyond, that the mood is very divided in Germany about how far to go in supporting Ukraine when it comes to the sanctions delivering heavy weapons?
3: Well, I feel that what you described of the taxi driver, that is a common perception of fear that war spreads. And exactly for that reason, we have to act with very high resolve to help Ukraine protect itself. Because otherwise, Putin is just going to sort of take that as a, as a carte blanche to to continue his war of aggression also in other parts of Europe. And that's exactly why we have to keep on delivering weapons, keep on supporting the Ukrainian government uh, to be sure that we send a clear stop signal to, to Vladimir Putin.
1: On the issue of the arms packages for Ukraine, as, as you know, there's been a lot of controversy and it's a very sore point, this debate about how effective the German contribution has been, and there are reports which have gone around in the media here in the last few days, that relatively little of it is reaching Ukraine, reaching where it needs to get to. Is that a sign of a kind of lack of strong will at the centre to get those deliveries through, or is it just something else going wrong?
3: I think we're doing way more than is generally talked about, number one. So, I mean, for example, Ukrainian soldiers are being trained on heavy weaponry here in Germany, and then they will be able to take these machines back home uh, to help them uh, defend their borders. This really, for Germany, has been quite a drastic shift in, in foreign policy. I mean, it was really before the beginning of this war, it wasn't really thinkable that we would deliver to such an extent, including also training on our own territory, weapons, including heavy weapons, to a conflict zone within Europe. There's something of a split in the
1: EU about the fundamental position, I think, on what the the shape now of policy towards conflict looks like. On the one hand, you have the strong view that Russia should be totally defeated, that that really does mean that Ukraine has to win. It's also the position of the UK government, the Baltics and and Poland. And then there is sometimes, again, if you listen to the language around it used by German politicians in the coalition, admittedly, a three-party coalition. So, of course, there are different dispositions within that. There's sometimes, in my mind, a sense that Germany would like to get to the end of this without saying clearly that Ukraine needs to win. Were you prepared to say that Ukraine needs to win?
3: Well, it's very clear to me that we do everything now that we can to support Ukraine in their right to defend themselves. And and of course, that means that, that Russia cannot win. That uh, means that uh, it's very clear that we need a solution in the end that uh, the Ukrainian government is willing to accept. And that also clearly means that that Russia cannot achieve its aims with military force. So Russia needs to lose? Definitely not to achieve its military ends, yeah. I'm fascinated, forgive me, I'm pressing on this point,
1: by the lengths that people will go to not to say Russia needs to lose. It cannot achieve its goals. So what does that mean? Is it a retreat to the situation in February where it was already in control of parts of the Donbass and the Crimea?
3: No, that's not what that means. But um, I think the situation in Germany is is so that it's very clear for us that this is quite a drastic shift in our foreign policy to say, now we're supporting Ukraine with everything we can do uh, to defend itself. But what
1: would an acceptable outcome look like? I mean, obviously, I can't ask you to write the detail of it. That would be a bit unfair, given that, you represent a party that's has been very brave in going into a position that cannot have been very comfortable in, within your own ranks, let alone a more perhaps fearful and divided public opinion. So what would you like to see happen at the end of it if we think about Germany and Russia and its future?
3: Well, for me, it's very clear that as long as, as Putin is in power, we cannot trust In the Russian government, we have to build a European security architecture that helps us protect ourselves and our allies uh, from Russia. And that's one of the reasons why this week uh, we're deciding on this huge extra package for the German military that uh, for many in my party hasn't been a very easy decision to to do. But I think we need to do it because we we have to uh, be ready to say, Look as europe 's largest economy we 're not only ready to do our share to defend ourselves but we're also capable of doing so
1: it's struck me thinking about the relationship between Germany and Russia since the end of the Cold War that stability was at the heart of it and that desire perhaps to have a relationship which, even if it under Vladimir Putin had its negative sides and his behaviors, could be sort of counted on and The problem now is with the invasion of Ukraine, that is not the case. Whatever else this is, this is not politics as usual. So I just wonder what this shift in the relationship between Germany and Russia means. You know, to someone like you, you've come into politics after that big change, the first Wende, the first change in 1989. Here we are in the Zeitung Wende, the changing times. What what do you take away from that personally?
3: You know, I feel sometimes a bit like, and some of these movies where you can see the guy's warning of what negative thing might come and saying, okay, change course now or something horrible will happen, the Green Party has warned for a very long time that it's not a good idea to be so dependent on authoritarian Russia, that we should pursue a value-based foreign policy that is less interdependent with authoritarian regimes. And, and now this is exactly what we're seeing, what dictators like Putin are capable of yeah to me this this basically means that the worst fears have come true of what could happen and we now continue to live in in a Europe that faces this threat and that we need to do more to also defend ourselves
1: and Lumen, thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you very much My thanks to John Loff and Alexander Dost. And do let us know what you think. What does the future hold for the relationship between Germany and Russia? What are the risks and possible rewards of getting the best out of this crisis? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. Anna Lohmann discussed Germany's response to the conflict in Ukraine. Well, this week, The Economist looks at why Olaf Scholz's dithering is damaging his international image, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. To read that and much more, become a subscriber today and take advantage of our introductory offer. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Alicia Burrell, Julia Johnson, and Robert Nicholson. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho, and the sound engineer is Timo Seiler. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in Berlin, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups.